Lord, I just um, praise you again and always for being a God who is completely sovereign over the entire universe and is capable of handling all things in our lives, that you are capable of the impossible, and that is our salvation, the redemption of our souls. And you are capable of even the little things in our lives, the trials, the sufferings, the sicknesses, the loss, the rejections, the conflicts that we deal with that seem so big to us, but are nothing for you. As tonight we go through scriptures, we we know that you love us and you're compassionate. And we thank you for being a God who's also involved in our life as well as sovereign. And that you love us enough to save us and redeem us, not only from death and hell, but also from those trials in our life. And that if you do allow them to keep going in our life, it's because you're using them to make us more Christ-like. You're using them to draw us closer to you. And that even if we don't get immediate healing now and here, ultimately in the end we will be healed in an internal sense. And I pray that we would be able to hold on to these truths of who you are, that you are the only God who has proved yourself powerful, capable, and good. In Jesus' name, amen. We are in chapter 12, verse 1 of Hebrews. The book closes with the continuation to endure. Remember the last two ideas that he's presenting in the last part of chapter 10 through chapter 13 is that we must have faith in the correct object, that is Christ, who is better to all things, and we must endure in the faith because that's the mark of a true believer. So he encourages us to endure and have faith. He then deals with those in reverse order. He talked about what it means to have faith and what it means to live by faith and what faith can accomplish if placed in the right thing, that is Jesus Christ, in chapter 11. Now he goes on and encourages to endure. That by faith we can endure all things. And so that's what we open up with tonight. Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, we must get rid of every weight and the sin that clings closely and run with endurance the race set out for us, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set out for Him, He endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken His seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Think of Him who endured such opposition against Himself by sinners, so that you may not grow weary in your souls and give up. You have not been resist, you have not yet resisted the point of bloodshed in your struggle against sin. So this is what we closed on last week. In light of these great examples of faith, not these great examples of humans, but these great examples of faith and what God has done, we are surrounded by these great cloud of witnesses. And so he's going to encourage us to look at two things to endure. The first one is the examples of others that have set before us. The fact that if these flawed people, like us who are flawed, these people who did not have Jesus or the Holy Spirit or the Word of God in its entirety, were able to place faith in God, and God rewarded that with incredible acts of victory and incredible acts of deliverance from suffering 
or even incredible acts of just allowing them to persevere in the midst of suffering, ultimately until their final deliverance, then He can do likewise in our life. And so one of the keys to the Christian life is constantly surrounding ourselves with the testimonies of those in the Bible, of those in our family, in our church, and those of our own past experiences of the amazing things that God has done when we trusted in Him. And in many cases, too, the amazing things that He does for us when we fail to trust Him and how He still continues to honor and take care of us. And so that's the great cloud of witness. One of the most important keys to a successful Christian life is remembrance. A life that does not remember is doomed to fail. The Christian life is completely impossible without the Holy Spirit and without God. And our ability to hold on and grasp God and surrender the Holy Spirit is impossible without the remembrance of what He has done in the past. And that's what the whole book of Deuteronomy is about. The whole book of Deuteronomy is remember, remember, remember. Your parents failed to remember and they walked away and they died in the wilderness. So don't make the same mistake as your parents. And then every time he did the parting of the Jordan, the parting of the Red Sea, all those things, Rahab, he says, build a monument so that every single time your children see this, then they ask, why is that there? You will tell them of the amazing things that God has done in your life. Now, God is so cool because He knows that eventually we get used to monuments and pictures on the walls and we forget about them being there. But children ask questions about everything. And so not only does these monuments and these images help us remember as our children and then the next generation, our grandchildren, ask why, 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 and it makes us take notice of things that we've forgotten again, but also forces us to get out of ourselves and actually teach our children. And so this is the key. The key to the successful Christian life and living in this pinball machine world is remembrance. Remembrance. And it starts with the things that God has been doing all throughout the Bible and the lives of the people around us. That's the cloud of witness. Therefore, in the light of this remembrance, we must get rid of every weight that is the sin that clings closely and run the endurance of the race set out for us. The idea is the race is not finished. We're running, there are weights, there are obstacles, there are desires, there are sins that are constantly weighing us down, distractions. And just think, if Gideon and Jephthah and Samson were able to, if God was able to do amazing things with them, and they were weighted down with serious distractions and sins, how much more will God be able to do with us if we can truly throw off those things that cling to us? And so that's what he encourages us to do. Pay attention to their lives and throw off every single obstacle. That's the first thing. The second thing is verse 2. Keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, For the joy set out for him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat on the right hand of the throne of God. That's the second. Paul, when you read his writings, two ideas keep popping up over and over again. A life focused on Christ, centered around Christ, and oriented towards heaven. And that's one of the things he he seems to focus on. A focus on Christ, 
oriented towards heaven. And obviously that's the same idea that Hebrews is picking up because he's saying keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. But then there's this constant theme of he has blazed the trail. He is the perfecter or the pioneer of our salvation in heaven. And that we're ultimately going to end up there. And so we need to fix ourselves on Christ. One of the greatest examples um, visually is of Paul walking on the water, sorry, Peter walking on the water. And the one thing that you need to focus on is when Peter's in the boat, safe and sound, kind of, and he's filled with fear, despite being in a boat with a storm raging around, filled with fear, the storm is raging when he's in the boat. When he steps out in the boat, an incredible amount of faith, and he's walking on the water, the storm is still raging. When he takes his eyes off of Christ and begins to doubt and begins to sink, the storm is still raging. When he cries out to Christ for help and Christ pulls him up, the storm is still raging. What the difference between Peter sinking and Peter walking in the water was not his circumstances. They never, ever, ever changed. What changed between sinking and walking in the water is what he was focused on. When he began to look at his circumstances, he was filled with fear and he drowned. When he put his eyes on Christ, nothing else mattered. And that's the picture that's being painted here. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And if necessary, dig your fingers into his wrist so tightly that nothing can let go. And so this is the focus. These are the two things. Look, remember, remember, remember the things that God has done in other people's lives. And second, fix your eyes on Jesus. Four, why? The joy that set out from for him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Jesus went through hell in a way far greater than we could ever imagine. And the reason is we will never be able to imagine it and we will never have to endure it because he went through it for us. And the reality is what enabled him to endure hell? What enabled him to endure his trials? What enabled him to endure is he stay focused on the joy that was set before him. And the joy was that ultimately, if he did not bow the knee to temptation, if he did not give in to the devil, if he did not give in to his desire to not obey God and not persevere, then what was set before him was being reunited with the Father in heaven and the redemption of all of his creation. That's what he focused on. To step back into a relationship with God because that was what he would not have in those moments on the cross. And the redemption of his creation, which he loved enough to die for them. And it's the same thing for us. What is the joy set before us? That we will walk into the presence of God and Jesus, and then our final redemption of us and all those that we hold dear. This is what we're focused on. If he was able to endure hell... Because he focused on God, then he is our ultimate example of how we can endure our trials and sufferings in order to be redeemed with God. And here's the beauty of it all. He is in you. And the same one that is tempted without, tempted yet without sin is the same power of resistance and perseverance that's living inside of you. And that's the ultimate goal. And I know it's a Sunday school answer, but it's a Sunday school answer because it is the answer. 
the more and more time that you spend with Christ, and a not as the pastor said this Sunday, not just in a desire to know more things about Him, but to know Him personally, the easier and easier and easier it is to endure. Now, it will never be easy. I'm not saying it's a magic wand, but it gets easier. And that's the reality. That's what we're called to. And just like in the beginning, when you were obsessed with somebody and you were like them and you wanted to date them, all you could do is think about them and all you wanted to do is hang out with them and all you did was make time for them. If we truly love God and what He has done for us and we want to know Him, we'll make time for Him. Okay? And so, the more you remember Him, the more you'll be impassioned towards Him, and the more likely you are to be focused on Him and pursue Him. And that means the greater victories and endurance you'll have in your trials. And that's what He's set up here. And hopefully, after 12 chapters, He has ignited or deepened a greater desire and passion for Christ and wanting to know Him better. And that's the ultimate goal here. That's the ultimate goal. And as a result, God rewarded him by seating him on the right hand of him in heaven. And as First Peter will say, that because thus as Christ was vindic- vindicated by God, so we also will be vindicated if we can endure. And that's the reality. We are heirs with Christ if you persevere. So these are the keys. Remember what God has done in the past lives of those who have gone before us. Throw off all the obstacles that would get in our way, our distractions. And we're able to do that more easily the more we fall in love with who God is because the more we focused on Him. And that gives us the ability to focus on Him even more so that we will be able to endure. Verse 3, Think of Him who endured such opposition against Himself by sinners so that, he may not grow, so that you may not grow weary in your souls and give up. This is the key. If Christ can do it and He lives in me, then I can do it if I surrender to Him. Period. 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 There's no buts and there is no and. There is only Christ. You have not yet resisted the point of bloodshed and your struggle against sin. Now, I don't know whether this one's encouraging or not. (laughs) Um, the, uh, The encouragement is you haven't struggled to the point that it's killed you. But the other thing that's kind of discouraging is yet. Now, here's the reality. Christ did resist and struggled to the point that it did kill Him. And yet, He was able to stay tried and true. So the encouragement is not that you haven't died yet because of your struggles, but don't worry, it's coming. The encouragement is that unlike Christ, you haven't died as a result of your struggles. But if your struggles do lead to your death, then just as Christ was able to endure without giving in to the point of death, and yet God honored that and vindicated Him, then so will you, because He lives inside of you. And this, if you really truly understand how Christ is better than all things, and that Christ is in you, and that Christ will give you the same endurance and the victory that He Himself received and gained, then you will truly begin to understand what He means by greater is He who is in you than He is in the world. There's nothing truly to fear. Now listen, I'm not saying that's emotionally easy. I'm not saying that just saying that makes everything all better now. But I am saying 
that the more you remember God, the more you immerse yourself in who He is, the more you focus on Him, then the easier it becomes. And the more that you see Him at work, and you stop asking the why, why, why question all the time. doesn't mean you enjoy it, but you stop asking the why question as much. Because the more you begin to understand God is good. And, and like I mentioned last week with my example of the bills, I think that is, and many of you can testify this greater than I am, that's an experience. That's a walk. The longer you do it, I think the easier it is to surrender. The easier it is to not ask why. doesn't mean that you never do. It's just the easier it is to depend on Him. Then He gives us an encouragement. Verse 5, and you, have for, and you have forgotten the exhortation addressed to you as sons. And here he quotes Proverbs 3, verses 11 through 12. My son, do not scorn the Lord's discipline, or give up when He corrects you. For the Lord disciplines the one who loves, He loves and chastises every son He accepts. Endure your suffering as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you do not experience discipline, something all sons have shared in, then you are illegitimate and are not sons. Besides, we have experienced discipline from our earthly fathers and we respected them. Shall we not submit ourselves all the more to our father of spirits and receive life? For they disciplined us for a little while, as seemed good to them. But He does so for our benefit, that we may share His holiness. Now all discipline seems painful at the time, not joyful. But later it produces the fruit of peace and righteousness for those trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your listless hands and your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but is healed. So he quotes Proverbs and reminds us, that suffering is used to discipline us. And good fathers discipline their children. Now the idea is not that every trial and every suffering is because you've done some kind of evil or sin and God is saying, bad person, and He's punishing you. But the idea is, in a way that we are being disciplined, because every single trial is a result of sin in our life somehow. That every single trial is being used by God in order to remove the sin from our life. One of the greatest ways that this works is, when you go through a trial, you find out who you really truly are. Your natural default to either become very bitter, or to complain against God, or to try to fix it completely on your own without going to God, even if you don't become bitter, immediately begins to reflect, um, show you who you truly are. And then when God strips us of everything, when health begins to disappear, when materialism begins to disappear, when those things are taken from us, it causes us to cling to Him all the more. Because when we have nothing to trust in, then all we're left with is God. And so those are the two primary reasons that God used trials. There's many reasons. But those are the big ones that are used to highlight. One, to reveal who you really truly are so that you can take that to Christ and and surrender it and allow Him to remove it out of your life. And two, to help you really truly cling to God. And in that way, that is discipline. Because every single time we respond in an inappropriate way, it is our sin and selfishness. 
every time that we try to fix the problem our own without going to God, it is the sin and selfishness in our life. And every single time that we've gotten really comfortable and haven't really spent a lot of time focusing on Jesus, it is because of our sin and selfishness. So no, not every trial is a result of some specific sin that you just committed at that moment and God's punishing you. But every trial is a result of sin in your life because of just being a sinner who is self-centered, who tries to be self-reliant, especially in this culture of America that prides that self-reliance. And so that's the reality. That your father wants you to be more Christ-like and more dependent upon you, and that's why he disciplines you. And so he reminds us that this is happening because he loves us. And so he says, what father does not discipline their child? But if you experience discipline, verse 8, something all sons have shared in, if you do not, then you're illegitimate. Hey, who does not get disciplined? People who have no parents, or people who have parents that don't care. Or parents that rather be your best friend than your discipler. Those are the people who don't get disciplined in their life. And so that's what he's letting you know. So would you like an absent God who's not involved in your life? Would you like a God who's more interested in being your friend and never corrects you into being a better person so that you never receive the gift that's as set in store for you? Or would you rather have a God who just doesn't care? He is our loving Father. Now, the next thing he says, look, your fathers disciplined you, your mothers disciplined you, and you respected them for it. Now, I know some of you who are a little younger, that's hard to understand. But believe it or not, and you believe me, I hated it when people told me this. When you grow up and you're a parent, you'll understand. But you know what? It's so true. It's so true. At the moment, you probably think of all the reasons that your parents are screwing up. And there's probably many are reasons why they're screwing up. But the reality is in the end. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people, specifically I remember listening to this radio one time, like a secular station, and this girl, mother was calling and said that her daughter, 12 years old, wants to go to a sleepover party. There's going to be boys there. She's not comfortable with it, but all the other parents say that she's narrow-minded and too tight. And she doesn't want to do it, but her kid hates her. What should she do? And it was amazing how many people called in and said, my parents were strict and did not let me do things, and I hated them for it when I was a kid. But now that I'm an adult... I respect them for so much for doing that. And the other ones who called in said, my parents never, ever, ever, ever did any of that kind of stuff. And in fact, at the time, I either started trying to get in trouble intentionally just so that my parents would do something, or now I resent them for it. And it's interesting that even if the secular world gets it, it doesn't mean that all parents disciplined right. doesn't mean that they all did it exactly the way they should. It doesn't mean that they were perfect. It doesn't, but the fact that they did it, in the end, you know that you don't want a whole bunch of spoiled little brats running our country. And we don't want to live with them. Because mostly, yeah. Um, and so if we respect our flawed, sinful, ignorant parents for disciplining us, then how much more could we respect our perfect Father in Heaven who knows all things and knows the future? I mean, one of the scary things of being a bad parent is I don't know what I'm doing right now is going to work or not. I don't know what it's going to produce in the future. 
Am I being too strict? Am I not being strict enough? But what he says right here is if they who do are trying their best disciplined you out of love, then how much is the one who is the best and who knows exactly what he's doing and loves you far greater than your heavenly, your earthly parents? Can you trust him when he disciplines you? The ultimate reality is, do you really truly believe that God is good? Even when all hell seems to be breaking out among you. And that's what he encourages us. Once again, I really truly believe one of the major reasons that God gave us families is just to build a visual in our head to relate to what God is doing in our life. I mean, there's multiple reasons. I'm not saying that's the only one. But that's a major one. How can we understand the invisible, unknowable God that feels so distant from us sometimes? Well, He gives us the family. And if it's true of the family, then how much true is it the ultimate family and the ultimate father? And so that's the thing you need to cling to. If your parents did it, and they did it because they loved you, and you respect them now for it, then can you not give that same trust to a perfect, loving God who is good? Guard yourself from immediately saying, why and how could you? And immediately ask the question, how is this going to make me more Christ-like? That's the ultimate question. Or, how is God going to use this to make other people Christ-like? That's the ultimate goal. Now, all discipline, verse 11, seems painful at the time, not joyful. This is the beauty. Remember, Peter's going to say, count it all joy when you go through trials. And you're like, what? But he lets you know that that's not the way you understand it. It's not that be happy, yay, I'm suffering and people are dying. The kind of all joy is knowing that God's going to use it somehow. Knowing that God's going to use it somehow. And then he goes on and he quotes Isaiah 34, 35 and Proverbs 4. Therefore, strengthen your listless hands and your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so what is lame may not be put out of joint but is healed. Where do you find your strength? And the ideas that he's just laid out. Isaiah 35 will eventually moving on to Isaiah 40. And Isaiah 40 is that really popular um, bookstore, nice little picture Bible verse that we like to buy. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying, but it's just that one's been around for a long time. Where even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord and trust in Him will renew their strength, and He will lift them up on eagles' wings. It's not this Gandalf, Lord of the Rings idea where you're riding these wing- eagles. The idea is that a mother bird would tra- train its children to fly by putting its young on its wings and soaring. The father would sit on the nest and it would look out for predators. And it would immediately be ready to attack anybody who comes in and threatens his wife and his children. Why the mother lifts them up on eagle's wings and she would then drop her wings and let the children fall. And if they don't start flying, she would swoop down and pick them back up. And she would keep doing this until they learn how to fly on their own. And the idea is the images of the eagle who protects, but also the eagle that trains you. And so you must also realize that this idea of he's dropping you over and over and over again. 
Because that's how you learn how to walk in Christ. That's how you learn to rest in Christ. When you're resting in Christ, then you can be truly dropped and walk and endure and persevere. But if there's any time where you cannot handle it, if there's any time where the world is going to crush you, He will sweep in because He's ever watching, ready to destroy any kind of predator and ready to pick you up and comfort you at any time you trip and fall. Therefore, you don't have to be worried that you're weak. You don't have to be worried that your legs and your knees are incapable to have the strength to do it. The endurance has nothing to do with your ability. The endurance has everything to do with resting in Christ and focusing on Him. And the more you're in the Word, the more you're in the belief, the gathering the believers, the easier it is to endure. Because the idea is not, now that you know that Christ is better than all these things, and now that you have faith, then you endure. The idea is, now that you know that Christ is better than all things, and because you've placed his faith in him, and surrendered to him, and rested in him, and given up, and taken up your cross and fallen him, then you can endure, because he's the one lifting you up. He's the one strengthening you. He's the one blazing your trail. He's the one coming back and carrying you. Now this doesn't make it easier, in some sense, because we still want to do it ourselves. But it shifts the focus. Most of the time, we think our problem is that we are not doing a good enough job, and, oh, I will do better for you, God. And not realizing the problem is that we are trying to do a better job. And so, if you're always trying to be better, endure more, and persevere more, and have more joy, then it is impossible, and you'll feel doomed. But the more and more you see your sin, your addictions, your failures, your frustration, your hopelessness, your inability to endure as an opportunity to throw up your hands and quit and go to the Word of God and just immerse yourself in Him and know Him, then you will grow and you will succeed. And once again, I'm not saying it is easier to... I mean, we still have to surrender and that is so hard. But what I am saying is That if you never surrender, you're doomed. But if you do surrender, it's a little easier, and ultimately you will be perfected. Does that make sense? And that's the reason. If you wondered why you haven't grown in such a long time, ask yourself is this because you're trying to be better? And the beauty, too, is the more you surrender, the easier it is to surrender in that area. Unfortunately, the minute you succeed in surrendering, really well in one area, God immediately pushes another in your mind and says, okay, now this. Whatever area you think is your worst and weakest area that constantly haunts you all the time, don't worry. When you get better in that because you depend on Christ, then there will be another one that will take your thoughts. <laughs> okay, But that's the beauty because you're becoming more Christ-like. And so the reality is you're doomed if you try to do it on your own. But if you learned just these trials are to allow you to surrender, then you can succeed. And so that's the reality. Why does he spend so many chapters on crisis better? Not because it makes a really cool, great argument that gets you all excited and passionate, so that you will ultimately in the end realize it's not about you being better, it's about you throwing up your hands and saying, God help me. And that's it. And then making time. To hear him, to listen to him, to pray with him. 
And if you can't do that, then find people who can encourage you to do it. Accountability. This is why it says, do not give up gathering together like others have. And so that's the reality. We need to spend more time clearing our schedule and in the Word of God than constantly filling our lives with more programs to be involved in, no matter how good they are. Now, everybody's schedule is different. But the most important thing is, is your schedule scheduled by God? If God says, go ahead and say yes to this ministry, go ahead and say that, yes, that's, He'll give you what you need to endure, even though you look way busier than what I could handle in my life. And we're all different seasons and times. My commitments and the things I could say yes has drastically decreased with the addition of three little girls into my life. But the reality is, is what is God saying to you to say yes to?